Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Show of hands, how many of you listening right now can explain transfer pricing? It may be one of the most talked about and least understood tax topics right now. The underlying concept is a simple one. It's the method for pricing transactions between related parties. But what qualifies as related parties and how those transactions are valued has become increasingly complicated in a more global and more digital world. To try and sort through some of this and to understand how it affects taxpayers, I've invited Andrew O'Brien Penny and Tamara Levin to the show. Andrew is the Director of Economics in Baker McKenzie Consulting LLC in Chicago. He has experience in transfer pricing and valuation matters, assisting major multinational companies on a variety of engagements, including advising clients in audit and dispute resolution situations, supply chain restructuring, planning, advanced pricing agreements, or APAs, and intellectual property migration opportunities. Tamara is a partner in Baker McKenzie's San Francisco Palo Alto Tax Practice Group. She regularly advises companies, mostly in tech-based industries, on transfer pricing and tax planning matters, including structuring and implementing international operations, cross-border transactions, and post-acquisition integrations. Thanks to both of you for being here today. So let's talk about transfer pricing. First of all, I gave kind of a brief you know, what is it, but why are we talking about it and hearing more about it right now? Well, transfer pricing is all about how you price and document the relationships between companies in a multinational group. So how they transact with each other. And since how related parties deal with each other has tax consequences in each country, it's very significant. So for example, if company A charges company B to related party companies, too little for a service, it means company A's taxable income may be too low in country A, and company B's taxable income may be too high in country B. So transfer pricing is really a a fundamental issue that companies have been dealing with for a long time, but it's transforming as we see a move away from the arm's length standard, which was the historic standard around transacting with a related party as though you were at arm's length, to a standard that's looking more at what really remuneration should be on a global scale across jurisdictions based on those functions, assets, and risks, and and other aspects of activities that are happening, including sales cross-border into different jurisdictions. So there are universal questions about transfer pricing that come up in every operation. But as companies move to a more digital platform, there are new and and relevant issues that come up that they have to think about. And we can sort of dive right into some of those. But going digital means that companies have to think about transfer pricing in a new way because companies are developing a lot of new IP. There are key questions about who owns that IP and therefore who should get the economic benefit of owning that IP uh, from an income perspective and therefore which jurisdiction can tax it. Data also is becoming really important in how modern businesses are operating. 
uh, especially as companies are moving to a digital platform. And taxing authorities may claim that value is created in their borders due to local data collection. So companies need to have a position ready and, and to understand and be able to respond about how data is used, where the value is in the data. We're also seeing a lot of energy and focus around where value is created in modern businesses and how it's changing as companies are moving to a digital platform. For example, in the manufacturing or energy sector, there's a greater reliance on automated machinery monitored by IoT devices and remote workforces. So companies in that sector need to consider where value-added functions are being performed and how much of the resulting profit should be left in the jurisdiction where the manufacturing or extraction happens. I think that was a really interesting example that you bring up in manufacturing, because I do think when you were talking earlier about IP and, and technology, a lot of folks, when they hear about digital companies' data, their mind automatically goes to Amazon or Microsoft. Like I think a lot of taxpayers maybe don't know the extent of which multinational companies have intellectual property and related property and assets that uh, are in other sections. So when you talk about like manufacturing, I, I think that that is, it's interesting and new for a lot of people, because again, you know, we've, we've been watching the headlines and we see Amazon fighting, we see Microsoft fighting, we don't necessarily see these other companies. Yeah, I think that's the important thing, Kelly. So we have gone from the tech companies being at the center of these tax disputes. And now a variety of companies are starting their kind of digital transformation process, including industrial manufacturing, as Tamara was saying. So there's been an increased use of smart machines or sensors as part of the Internet of Things in manufacturing and supply chains. And these machines and sensors collect a variety of data. They could notify you know, a plant manager that a machine needs maintenance, even before a maintenance team may notice. And that ensures additional uptime and efficiencies. They can also help reduce waste and scrap in the manufacturing process. Or, you know, sales generated from a CRM system can provide information in real time to manufacturing so that specific custom orders or number of units can be known right away. And each of these uses of data can help create efficiencies, reduce costs, or help the business be more nimble to increase sales. And really, the transfer pricing questions are, you know, what is the additional value created by the new processes? And, you know, where are the people managing and implementing these systems that create the additional value? You know, there's additional complication if you use machine learning or artificial intelligence. If AI or machine learning is combined with the data to create valuable insights, you know, which jurisdiction should get credit? Right. And the jurisdiction issue is more interesting now, I think, as we see not only a change in administration in the U.S., but a change in position in some other countries in terms of how are they taxing, what kind of rates are they taxing. Um, I think that's what makes it more interesting and more complicated. Exactly. There's a variety of different positions on you know, whether it's the people whether it's the capital itself, whether it's you know the algorithm that is really driving the value. Some tax authorities have said it's the raw data. We don't believe it's just the raw data. You have to take the raw data and turn it into something useful for it to be valuable for the multinational uh, and to create value overall that could be taxed. But the data itself should not be taxable. So how do you how do you advise clients when it's not settled? 
like if, if it's obviously, you know, tax laws, that's what makes tax law fun, right? That is, it's always, a, it's always a puzzle. But how do you advise when you may have different jurisdictions that have different views on valuation or location? Like, how do you tell clients, this is, do you just start off with, this is what we think, kind of like you just said, we think this and hope for the best. Like, how do, how do you move those discussions forward? Well, there are existing longstanding you know, somewhat old-fashioned transfer pricing rules that still exist across the world, right? And we're entering into an era where those are being revisited, mm-hmm. but we have very well-established transfer pricing rules in the U.S. under 482 that provide guidance to the extent you're transacting with a U.S. party. We have clear guidance on how we should be thinking about pricing. The other side of the coin is, you know, what the other jurisdiction, you know, how the other jurisdiction views it. And what methods, you know, as a taxpayer, can you use, you know, to address it? So there's sort of the method question about how you how you price and what makes sense given changing facts. But at the core of any transfer pricing analysis, you know, at this point in time, at least, is really thinking about what are the functions, what are the risks, what are the assets, who's involved, and really examining these newer technologies and newer business models to understand you know, how to apply these traditional transfer pricing frameworks at this point in time. And when you talk about the existing framework in kind of a new space, how are you documenting and supporting those determinations? Like if you say, okay, this is what traditionally, how we've traditionally approached this, now we're going to apply this to AI or, or to machine learning or to, to different kinds of data. Do, how do you support that or document it within the, the client? That's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, the there are legal and commercial arrangements that need to be documented in terms of legal agreements, clear terms about who's bearing risk and who's performing what functions. So the documentation really starts from the agreement level that, you know, before you're creating IP, you should know who is going to be doing it, and who's going to be owning it, and do they have the resources and capabilities to do it? And then, you know, there's pricing it and looking at and applying traditional transfer pricing processes to come up with a price and to do a transfer pricing analysis. There's also value chain analysis to take a step back and look at the business and look at where value is now being created in light of new business models and to document that appropriately. And really, taxpayers are in a position to put forward their best positions about who owns what and why. Mm-hmm. They do that from the start through their agreements, and they trace that all the way through to you know the transfer pricing reports and the value chain analyses and the files that they put together on this. And I know you know Andrew, you can talk more about that on the controversy side, but these issues you know flow through and have consequences because the first step is pricing it taking your tax positions, but then the next phase is what controversies we see in light of those positions. Yeah, at least from a controversy perspective, tax authorities have been ramping up their you know hiring of transfer pricing specialists for audits. Um, and we're seeing a proliferation of multi-country audits, especially in the European Union. The EU actually um, has started a new program, Fiscalis 2020, where they have this exchange of information and expertise, particularly on transfer pricing, that sits on top of the local country audits, and they create these transfer pricing working groups. And we're seeing other types of these you know, resolution mechanisms proliferate. So 
We have the OECD developing the ICAP program, um, where about a dozen countries get together for a risk assessment of transfer pricing, and only if they find something risky will they actually lead to audit. But I, I think fundamentally, um, you know, the, the controversy space has really changed and taxpayers need to be ready. So in order to be ready, ready the question is how? Prepare a de- defense file of some sort. Um, have a, a placemat that you can give to local finance or tax personnel who are the first line of defense when a local tax authority comes knocking. And how you manage that audit will be critical, making sure that everyone around your multinational company understands why the transfer pricing was set the way it was. Right. And so when you talk about the the controversy, I actually found this really interesting because, again, we're seeing some of these cases in a really high profile way now that we used to not see before. Are the cases that we're seeing, the big ones, obviously making the headlines, are they actually indicative of what's happening or are they just just in the headline because they're so big? Are, we, are you seeing, I know you said that audit space is changing a little bit in the way that they're looking at it. Are you seeing that they're really targeting very large companies or are they targeting sectors or are they targeting, is the little guy just at as much at risk as Coca-Cola? I think that you know, again, we see the big players and I think idea is that, oh, maybe they're getting, they're attracting attention because they're so large, but are they also attracting attention from the taxing authorities because they're so large or is it just, they're looking at all of these, these new developments kind of across the board? I really think it's the large guys have more of a target on their back than the small guys. And it's really across sectors. Okay. The tax authorities are seeing which are the large multinationals that do have significant profitability. And you see all the stories about, you know, X company has shifted, you know, this amount of profit to some, you know, low tax jurisdiction in the Caribbean. And, you know, that is really the target that all the countries are trying to go after that pot of gold. And that, that, that okay. is really. Uh, manifesting self in different ways. So you mentioned Coca-Cola. That's you know one particular tax case that you know is more public. But we see a lot of um, you know audits that happen that don't end up in the public sphere. That still are the large ticket mm-hmm. related to transfer pricing. But it's where is that pot of gold that they see at the end of the rainbow if we have a really a profitable multinational? Right. And a, and a point to add on that is that you know the cases that you see at the court level are years in the past, right? There's a lag um, associated with litigation and to the extent you're really litigating in, in the court system. And so I agree with Andrew that a lot of resolution happens. There's a lot of audits that happen that are not visible and that are re- resolved and, and solved you know, before they go. Oftentimes tax controversies that land in the courts, it's the last resort. It's not you know, what companies prefer to do. And so you're not seeing as many tax cases, although there are very high profile and significant cases, you're not seeing the number that's really reflective of the audit activity in the US and globally. And I will add too that, you know, we're we're entering the era where there is more visibility globally in terms of, of what uh, taxpayers are doing, both in terms of the transfer pricing documentation, master file, local file. And in terms of DOCSIC's reporting, that's, you know, giving more real-time information about transactions that might be significant enough and sort of should be looked at closely or subject to audit. And so we're seeing sort of a change there where you're going to have more visibility. So as I started by saying, you know, there is a lag in what you're seeing in the, in the courts 
So we don't really know yet what the next chapter is still emerging, but we think it's going to be more of the same and it's it's going to be quite significant across jurisdictions. When you mentioned the the passage of time, and that's I think a really interesting point because you know, we've seen a lot of change in the world, especially over the last year and a half because of the pandemic that maybe hasn't caught up to either audit reporting or, you know, whatever the next step's going to be. How has the pandemic changed things in the in the transfer pricing world? I know that we've had a, a few articles in our uh, Bloomberg's Insights about how, especially in parts of Asia, how they are really reexamining pricing agreements. How are you seeing changes as a result of the pandemic? And you know, is it accelerating or slowing things down? Is it just making people look at things in a different way? What kinds of things do you see changing as a result of the last 18 months or so? I think it really is that some companies in the non-digital space were reticent to jump into the digital space or had invested only somewhat in digital solutions. But COVID really, forgive the pun, provided a shot in the arm and required businesses to to change their business models quickly to just stay afloat. And this could be anything from, you know, a large retailer needing to develop, you know, digital storefronts and apps to help them sell curbside. I'm sure you've had plenty of curbside or, you know, delivery that you've had during the pandemic. Even small businesses have had to develop this. So if you have that app, Mm -hmm. you know, the question is, what is the, the value of, of that app and what is the additional value it's, it's generating for the company? You've spent resources developing that app and you have potentially increased sales because of it, or maybe you can extract data from your customers. You can understand what their preferences are and gather insights. And maybe you can, say, target a particular thing that the customer would be interested in for their next purchase. All of that creates value for the multinational. And the question on a go-forward basis is, how material is that going to be to your business? And should a new transfer pricing arrangement be set up in order to deal with you know, the, the data, the app, and everything related to it? Right. How about remote work? Since you mentioned apps, not only are we doing more curbside, but a lot of us working from home. How is remote work changing or influencing the transfer pricing space? This issue has really been exacerbated by COVID-19. In many cases, there were longstanding travel restrictions where we'd say for transfer pricing purposes, we want substance in a particular jurisdiction. We want to make sure that the people making the decisions are in the jurisdiction they should be. COVID-19 happens and you have you know, all of these people that are making high-level decisions scattered. Now, the question is, do we go back to the way it was before or are people going to want to have a little bit more flexible working arrangement? If so, do we need to rethink how we're approaching our transfer pricing arrangements? Right. And there are, you know, to be fair, a number of tax issues that arise outside of transfer pricing, too, with respect to remote working. You know, for example, um, cross-border PE issues. There was guidance initially on on remote work in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. But as we're getting to the tail end of the pandemic, we're stretching really that guidance there becomes significant issues about where people are working and whether you have cross-border tax issues separate and apart from transfer pricing, but transfer pricing is also there too. When you go to which entities are employing individuals and which entity gets credit for that in terms of its remuneration. I'm fascinated by this idea 
we were just talking about a moment ago about the the lag time because we're suggesting that these things are creating new ways of thinking about things and and debating whether or not we should go back to the old way. It's likely that we might not find out whether or not you've made the right choice for, you know, a couple of years. So when you're advising clients, especially in an an area where things are changing rapidly, because I think, you know, when we think about technology, we just did a, a piece on this recently about how we tend to think that things have been around forever, but, you know, the iPhone hasn't really been around that long. How do you plan? Because you have to think about the next big thing. And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but in terms of projecting what you think will be next, where do you see things changing? Like, where do you think the next technological advance that you have to be on top of is? Because I don't think anybody could have expected that we would have, you know, you, you mentioned the apps earlier. My parents are now using apps to order things online. And, and I don't think that I thought they would have done that a year ago. So I think that there's a lot of acceleration, a lot of adaptation that we haven't seen before. What do you think is the next thing that we have to be on the lookout for? Or can you even answer that? I mean, it's, it's, I know I'm asking you to have a crystal ball, which is really, really hard. But when you kind of think about the way that things are evolving, do you have any thoughts on what might be changing or, or what taxpayers should be on the lookout for? Because obviously, as tax planners, that's one of the things that we struggle with is kind of trying to predict what comes next. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because ultimately, it really is the businesses and the operation of the business that's driving where the business is going, right? Tax is not the driver. It never has been. Right. It's what the business is seeing in the market. How can it be competitive? And then the tax function really needs to be on top of what the business is doing, right? So as companies, you know, need to be in touch with where, what's the R&D effort that's underway? Where is it happening? Who's involved? All those things are going to really be important from a transfer pricing function perspective but ultimately aren't the drivers. We are seeing a move to sort of extreme digital where it's a convergence of all of these digital capabilities that are leading to you know, new opportunities in the business space, combining AI, internet of things, digital storefronts, cloud computing, all of these things together producing really advanced digital world that is really mind-boggling too when you think about how far we've come in the past decade even. Ultimately, as tax practitioners, companies, tax departments need to think about where things are in the business and how they can support the transfer pricing positions and how they can anticipate the changes that need to be made um, in terms of pricing, in terms of intercompany agreements, so that they can really support you know, the tax position in light of those business changes. When you were saying about learning, uh, you know, understanding the business, because the business is the driver and not the tax. It reminded me of, we had a CPA, Katie, on that talked, she was a cannabis attorney. She was in, dealt with cannabis tax. And one of the things she used to say is that she used to go out to all of our clients individually to watch how they did business because it was really important for her to understand how they were carrying out their business before she could give advice. Obviously, in a multinational space, that's much more difficult. But how much do you try to you know tackle the business part of what your clients are doing. I mean, obviously, a large law firm, you have more resources to do that kind of thing. But do you do you try to learn, like, would you have, are you going out to a Coca-Cola plant and watching how they do their processes? Or, you know, how much of the business part of things do you try to absorb prior to the planning? Or do you do you just rely on 
you know, the board and, and, and what they tell you in terms of what you're using to make your, your planning recommendations? Actually, the most fun part of our job is conducting what we call functional interviews. So we actually do go out to the plant or we go to a, an R&D site or we talk to the engineers and we ask, okay, what are you working on? Just like in any organization or any personal relationship, one person will have one story and one person will have another. Sure. So it's really trying to get the overall understanding of what is the value contribution of the personnel in each jurisdiction and how that contributes to the overall profitability of the company. So if you have an R&D team uh, that's working on a particular project in India and you have another one in Silicon Valley or you have them in Memphis, you know, the question is, where is the appropriate you know, allocation of profits between those two jurisdictions? India will, of course, say, we have a bunch of engineers here. We should get a, you know, a high return. The U.S. will say the exact opposite. So having the facts and con- conducting those functional interviews at the outset is very important. But that's not practical in all situations. So what is the average taxpayer to do? You know, staying on top of what the business uh, is doing, listening to the new, you know, quarterly announcements of these are the new initiatives of the company and seeing where is the business going next is critical. And that's been helpful for a lot of situations where the tax department may have had blinders on, but they were listening, you know, to, to the, the quarterly reports and said, well, this is, you know, what's, what's relevant to the business right now. We should start paying attention to it from a tax perspective. And since you mentioned the most fun part of your of your job, that being one of the most fun parts of your job, for folks who are listening who are maybe starting out in the tax business, um, I know that, again, transfer pricing has been um, in a lot of headlines, but maybe they people don't know what it is that you do. Can you, each of you, give us like a quick synopsis of like what you would do in a typical day uh, in terms of your your work? And obviously, I understand Every day is different, but um, are you out in the field? Are you researching? Or like, what takes up most of your time? I approach transfer pricing from the lawyer side of the house. I'm drafting agreements. I'm working a lot in IP uh, related transactions that have sensitivities and need to be closely documented. You know, helping companies to understand um, changes in their their business. But a lot of my work is really in the IP related space. Because it's you know significant for companies with existing transfer pricing arrangements where they have existing you know IP structures, any changes that need to be made, involvement in in acquisitions and and divestitures, and needing to figure out how you know their IP structure works in light of that. And so you know also some of the work is is on the documentation side in terms of documenting positions, anticipating controversies. APA uh, work, so helping to come up with advanced pricing on an agreement with uh, relevant tax authorities on the transactions that a company is engaging in. And you, Andrew? Yeah, so I I do a decent amount of these functional interviews. Um, They are interesting to understand the facts and appropriately plan the transfer pricing and understand what's going on with the business. I also do a lot of work supporting controversies, so specifically valuing different approaches to how we may want to argue a particular case. Um, so I'm doing a lot of economic modeling, a lot of Excel work, and uh, that's that's kind of my bread and butter. Um, I also manage kind of compliance projects. Part of transfer pricing is putting together what we call documentation, and that is after the year is all said and done, 
are each one of the affiliates of a multinational around the world earning an appropriate amount of profit? And we prepare reports for compliance with each one of the jurisdictions around the world. So all of that is, is kind of within my wheelhouse. Let's say it sounds like uh, there's enough work there to keep both of you busy. So my, my last kind of question focuses on this idea of transparency. And I know that Tamara mentioned that earlier, that we're seeing a lot of data a lot more quickly than before with some real-time reporting. Where are clients on transparency? Because I, I find it kind of interesting that this information is available really quickly. I know in the VAT space, some of the uh, taxpayers are really excited to have the real-time reporting and to have all the information out there because they feel like it kind of helps them justify their positions. But on the other hand, it's a lot of information that's available that maybe companies don't want so available. Are you finding that increased transparency in reporting both to authorities and quite frankly, in pub- to the public? Do you find that that companies are mixed on this? Do you think it's a good thing? I'm kind of interested in your thoughts generally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big compliance burden for our clients. You know, I've watched clients really struggle with getting ready and ramped up for the Doc 6 reporting. You know, the fact that there was a look back period of some time that, that taxpayers had to trace all the transactions that had taken place, many of which were really routine transactions that, you know, not tax motivated, just entirely about changes in the business and sort of responding to those and having a a big compliance burden with, you know, most companies have really done a good job, I think, of getting set up with managing going forward Doc 6 compliance and have a huge burden with these types of compliance exercises. And so it's quite challenging for taxpayers to to manage that and, and have to give a lot of resources to handle that. So from that perspective, I think it can be excessive and make it quite challenging for companies to manage, especially with smaller tax departments in some cases than historically companies had. Right. Andrew, do you think that the transparency has the same? I mean, because you see it on the controversy side, right? So you see kind of the after, I guess, the after effects of this. Do you think that the increased drive for transparency is welcome or not? I think the increased drive for transparency makes small and large countries feel like they're on the same footing. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the past, smaller countries have felt they only know a tiny part of what's going on in the overall multinationals pie. And this is at least giving them comfort that, you know, they're getting a a fair shake, if you will. And I think as part of getting the fair shake, um, you know, a lot of this transparency has been driven by the OECD so the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development and the European Union. And they're both trying to think of other mechanisms on how to make things, quote unquote, fairer. Right. Um, and another a big one that's come out recently is, you know, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So Pillar 1 essentially creates a new taxing right where countries essentially can tax income of multinationals over and above what the traditional transfer pricing rules would otherwise say. Think of it a little bit like state taxation and nexus and all of that. And then pillar two is essentially creating a global minimum tax rate. You know, the EU is fully behind this. The US now under the Biden administration said, um, yes, we're generally supportive. Maybe we limit it to the largest X number of multinationals. But I think the next stage in transfer pricing development is, okay, we have transparency. Now, how can we make things fairer? I think that's where things are going. 
which is going to be interesting because, you know, we can never agree on what's fair, right? When it comes to tax. Yep, yep. So <laughs> that, that will be an interesting discussion. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I think this has uh, been really valuable. I will have links in the show notes, both to your bios and then also to the report that you guys put out on Bloomberg. If you wanted to be found and people wanted to find you either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? I would send them to bakermckenzie.com or LinkedIn for myself. Same for me. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.